Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 109. On today's episode, we're talking about anti-Judaism and anti-Blackness with Liz Lowe. Liz Loeb completed a PhD in law and society from NYU, worked as a civil rights attorney, and is presently a community organizer for an interfaith organization called Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Reverend Daniel Parham, Grace Sangalang Ng, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. In this conversation in our series on anti-Judaism, as we extend it into more contemporary issues in, in, this, in this conversation on its relationship with anti-Blackness, uh, it was a lot of fun to have Liz Loeb on. She's very passionate and she brings a lot of her legal experience and insights to this uh, conversation and even her whole self. She's very clear about her identities and how that contributes to, to everything that she has to say and just really enjoyed this conversation. What did you all think about our conversation with Liz. What I appreciate about our time with Liz was her ability to capture some of the complexity of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, anti-Blackness, and the complexities of the history of this kind of racial hierarchy that's been built, right? And how she highlighted the fact that anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism actually has a longer history, uh, at least a longer, more visible history uh, than anti-Blackness in the sense of just time and frame, right, in terms of the history of Israel. And so I think that that was helpful positioning because it intersects um, some of where we see the elements of white supremacy wedging itself between anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness and also informing both of those areas as well. And so it's, it's, it was good to, to hear that that complexity and understand that that white supremacy has shaped both irrespective of the periods of time in which they have been developed. Yeah, I really appreciated Liz and the work that she's doing and uh, just what she brought up about collective liberation and collective well-being, just kind of having this more communal mindset in how, yeah, we all like need to work together to pursue uh, social justice and how it benefits everyone collectively. I think that's uh, really cool just to hear the emphasis on relationships that she has in her work and even to sustain her in her work, those deep relationships that she has with uh, the people that she works with and um, the ways that she sees, yeah, people's like light bulbs going on, like in the work that she does, like that sustains her too. So I think um, that was really cool just getting to hear more about that. And I think the other theme of connectedness that she draws out is thinking about the way that different systems of injustice intersect. And she's sort of reflecting on that from her own experience and also the work that she's done as a lawyer and as a community activist. I just, I thought it was so powerful really in a number of places and such a reminder about the, the call for sort of collective liberation. It, runs along so many different fault lines and um, the responsibility that we all have within that for working towards justice. Yeah, I really loved the way that she expressed the wrestling, deep wrestling with variegated identities and how that isn't just a hypothetical or an academic exercise, uh, but it is a, a really a felt and lived reality for her, but also uh, how she has seen the benefits of 
uh, those variegated identities in order to be able to express them for community benefit and for engagement with both uh, Judaism uh, and the communities that she represents. And here's our conversation with Liz Lowe. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Liz. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your background and and what sort of got you into this this topic of thinking about the relationship between anti-Judaism and anti-Blackness? Sure. So I'll I'll introduce myself a little bit. Uh, My name is Liz Loeb. I use she and her pronouns. I'm speaking to you from Dakota land in Northeast Minneapolis, where I live with my spouse, Sarah, and my dog, Chloe, who you might hear in the background because she likes to make herself known. I, you know, when I talk about my background, I always like to name some identities that I hold coming into a conversation because I believe that identities are both ways that we understand ourselves and way that ways that we negotiate the social and political world. Sometimes we choose our identities, sometimes they are chosen for us. And in that negotiation is a lot of complexity and history. I also believe that the thing we call identity shapes the perspective we bring and it shapes how we're perceived. And so, especially because this is a podcast and you're hearing my voice, I think it's important to know a little bit about my embodied self so you understand the context of my words. So there are so many ways we could talk about our identities and I'm gonna pick some that I believe matter to this particular conversation and that matter to me and who I am. So I am white. I was born in the United States. I am a cisgender woman. I'm queer. I am about to turn 43 years old, and I'm Jewish from a mostly Ashkenazi family. And one side of my family, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. On the other side of my family, my grandparents and their parents were refugees from programs in Russia. And so we come to Judaism in the United States through diaspora, a diaspora that involved Europe but did not begin in Europe. I knew from a young age that I wanted to be involved in social justice work and community organizing. I was so lucky to grow up in a context in a family that valued social justice. I was so lucky to grow up in a multiracial context where I was able to hear direct stories of the civil rights movement from people who had lived it and who were directly impacted by it. And as a Jew, and as a Jew in a a family that involves people of all races, not all races, that's a ridiculous sentence, but but I grew up in a multiracial context Uh, There was always a sense that there wasn't a way to be Jewish without caring about racial justice and without being directly impacted by racial justice, even though in the United States I exist as a white person. I was always clear about not only my self-interest in ending white supremacy, but the impact on the people I loved. And that just came to me through experiencing life at an early age. And I'm so lucky that what that translated into was a passion for community and community activism and for the thing we call liberation and justice. And so I came out as queer in the 90s. I experienced the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. I, through so many different structural forces, had access to elite education where I was able to pursue and understand social justice as a thing you could do with your time in a capitalist context while also asking some really deep questions about that capitalist context. And so I pursued an academic background, worked as a civil rights attorney for about a decade, and then came back into community organizing as my 
deepest home and sort of community organizing got me into civil rights litigation and it's what brought me into a different role in the movement. And now in Minneapolis, I currently serve as the Associate Director of Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, which is a statewide organization that works with communities of faith, conscience and spiritual practice at the intersection of racial justice and climate justice. And we do so in relationship and in, and solidarity with native and indigenous communities. Uh, so Liz, in your, in your introduction, you mentioned um, some of your family background and kind of uh, coming from a diaspora. And then I think even as we're uh, envisioning some of the, the, the conversation of anti-Judaism, anti-Blackness, uh, there is this similarity of this diaspora uh, context between Black Americans and, and Jewish Americans or those who have, have come from, from Israel. And so it just this the thought of um, that, that context for you as you've done your work, uh, how much bridge building have you seen between the Black community and the Jewish community? Uh, and, and, and in some ways, um, uh, where are there uh, different rivers flowing in terms of the context? Because we know there's so much uh, deep entrenchment in marginalization, as well as some of the deep sufferings that both communities have experienced, uh, I think, in the Jewish context, uh, both outside and within the U.S. as well. So just would love your thoughts on that. So, Daniel, I think there are infinite ways to approach that question and no answers. And there, I will bring my, my experience, what I say will be shaped by who I, who I am and how I've been in the world. But the first thing I think of is how many Black Jews there are, both outside the United States and in the United States. And something I've heard again and again from Black Jews in my life is that there's so much erasure that it's assumed there's Blackness and there's Jewishness. And so many people who hold multiple identities in the United States are asked to choose, and that can be especially painful for Black Jews who, 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 for whom both of those experiences are constitutive and are core. And of course, everybody holds that differently and in their own way. There are so many pieces to Black diaspora in the United States, but the undeniable piece is that many Black people were forcibly kidnapped and brought to the United States as slaves and as chattel slaves. And so for American descendants of enslaved people, there's one legacy for people who emigrated from the United States from other places in the world, uh, whether that's countries within Africa or elsewhere, there's a different part of that history. And I think for Jews in the United States, Jews, of, Jews across racial identities in the United States, there are so many differences depending on what the lineage and history is, and then how identity formation happened many times around whiteness and assimilation to the United States. So who has access to whiteness and who doesn't and how that access becomes conditional on, in, in many times access to whiteness is, con is, is conditional on a compliance with the expectations of white supremacy. And there's, of course, there is colorism and there's how we read each other's skin. And there's, you know, I am somebody who, if I am standing in front, of a, in front of a police person at the grocery store when I'm in school, I am white. And that is not, that is always a complicated thing, but it's not understood as a complicated thing. My Jewishness is not something that has to be visible in every moment on my skin in the same way, even though it lives within me. And my understanding from being in community with Black folks is that that is a very different thing from Black folks. You are Black everywhere you go. And even though I'm Jewish everywhere I go, if that's not my choices around that, my safety around that are just constituted very differently. And I think there's, 
there's a strain in your question about what is the relationship between non-Jewish Black folks and non-Black Jewish folks in that history. And I think I think we'd need an entire graduate course on all of the different, because it's completely, it's specific. It is so contextual. I, there, are, I do, there aren't generalities that I can draw. Um, I can, or I could, or I could try to talk about why particular systems of white supremacy in the past 500 years, understanding white supremacy, one way, or rather one way to talk about white supremacy being that it is a social and political technology that takes structural form that institutes a violent racial hierarchy so that a small number of people can benefit from the stealing of land and bodies. It's one way to understand white supremacy. I could talk about my analysis of why white supremacy requires anti-Semitism to accomplish anti-Blackness. And that's a little different than what are the experiences of non-Black Jews or non-Jewish Black folks um, as a different type of analysis. But Thanks, Liz. And uh, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said there when you were talking about if you're relating to the police or if you're, if you're public-facing identity you present as white, I believe is what, what you said. And I just wanted to pick up on that. And I'm interested because, so from my my perspective as an, as an Australian, as an Asian yeah. with a Anglo name, I don't have yeah. identifying features as, a, as, a, as an Asian on paper and even in my voice, but yet there is this variegation of identity there. I'm interested in your reflections on, on how those variegated identities shape our interactions and especially others interactions with with us or us in the mm. in in the sense of people interacting with those who are, are marginalized and especially your reflections because of the the nature of Judaism as uh, what has been often termed the eternal enemy so within many cultures Jew- Jewish people have been marginalized and ostracized you know, Bulgarian Jews or Romanian Jews or um, American Jews. And it's not just about the color of one's skin or the presenting nature of identity, such as if I travel to to Asia, I'm treated as a local. And so therefore I become right. integrated in my identity there. Uh, but often Jew, Jewish uh, people are denigrated even within the culture that they are embedded within and for multiple generations have uh, ethnically within that culture. So I'm interested in, in that wrestling there, especially because this seems to come out of a religious framework rather than an ethnic framework. Right. Um, oh, Chris, I appreciate this so much and I have so many things to say. <laughs> and thank you for beginning with your experience and a way and telling part of how this lives in you. I really appreciate that. You know, I grew up outside New York City. I spent my 20s in New York City, and I had to learn all over again when I moved to Minnesota what it meant to be Jewish in Minnesota after experiencing being Jewish in New York City, being surrounded by Yiddishkeit culture, which is, and you know, Ashkenazi culture is just one of many, many Jewish cultures. And we, um, in Jewish community, there's a lot of conversations about Ashkenormativity and the place of Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews and how, how our own racial hierarchies function within the Jewish world. But I, as me, experienced coming from New York where things made sense as a Jew to Minnesota where they made a different kind of sense, not, not as much sense. <laughs> and I had to relearn. And it's sort of, it's different, but resonant within me in the way that my queerness 
changes depending on context. If I go in to a straight bar, the way I feel my queerness is very different than when I'm with my friends. I think one of the curious isn't a strong enough word, uh, a, a thread in the conversation around anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism is older than white supremacy. There was a point in time where the system of white supremacy was invented in order to carry out the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny really through a, through a particular form of institutionalized Christianity um, that then required, I mean, there are, there are many other ways to tell this history. There are many other theor theories around this, but that then required a racial hierarchy in order to keep taking lands and bodies. And then all of the, all of the things, right? This is where we could go on for hours and hours. But anti-Semitism predates what we know as one type of invention of race. And if we look at how anti-Semitism formed in Europe, it was in relationship to Christianity. There was an alignment of Christianity with the states and the great chain of being and the divine right of kings. And, and I, you know, one particular form of Christianity, this isn't, isn't about people who follow in the Christian faith. This is about institutions that then claimed Christianity as a form of power in a particular way. And in order to maintain that form of power, there were heathens, which involved many, many people who weren't Jews, who weren't Christians. And then there was anti-Semitism, which had which had a specific role within that. And it was twofold. It was one, Jews are associated with the devil. I have been asked if I have horns by people who have never met a Jew before. Very well-meaning. I mean, like, like with the best of intentions, they, they just want to know. And they've never been told otherwise. They've been taught all their lives that Jews bear the mark of the devil. Mostly I've encountered this from people who are raised in sects of Christianity, but it's it's a well-meant question, but nonetheless surprising. But this is this is old. I mean, th this is this is early, early European formation. Uh, that's a little bit different than just people who aren't Christian or heathens and less human, so we can go have crusades, right? And take more land and bodies. And so Jewishness played a role of both being expected to prop up power in a particular way and not being trusted and being a form of evil that could be defined against. And that, and there's a, a, a way that anti-Semitism has a fluidity so it can play multiple roles. And in some ways, this relates to it how really contemporary formations around anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness is if you're a Christian white supremacist and you, this is horrible coming out of my mouth, but if you believe that Black people are less than human, how do you explain Black brilliance? How do you explain Black excellence? You say that George Soros is behind it. You say, aha, it's the Jews. And there are corollaries in a pre-white supremacist European formation where it's the Jews have all the power, ha ha ha, they're the tax collectors and the Jews can't be trusted and are both. And it's that, that trope is old and it does, it, it does political work around power. And so when I think about Jewishness as a, as an identity that comes into and out of view, I think about how anti-Semitism has been used in relationship to power and how that relates to the are you or aren't you? Are you white and a person, you know, are you white or are you not? Are you, are you loyal to the US or are you loyal to Israel? Which is one of the very anti-Semitic tropes told that are like right now, that are animating political life right now. And so there's there's the psychosocial experience of how do I say who I am? How do I sh 
show up in the world as who I understand myself to be and how is that contextual and shifting and always in relationship. And then there's the, the political history of what does that mean? Thank you so much for that, Liz. And um, yeah, particularly thinking about the way that anti-Semitism is entwined with white supremacy and the different um, variations that takes. Um, I wonder if I could come back to something you said at the beginning uh, of that uh, answer and thinking about how you experience your Jewish identity differently, sort of having moved from New York to Minnesota. Um, you can probably tell from my accent that I'm not from the States, I'm in London. Um, and I wonder if you uh, might reflect a bit more on I guess how you you witness the intersection of uh, anti-blackness and anti-Jewishness in those two places. What's what are the common threads for you? How is that kind of locally distinct, and how does that impact the work that you do? I don't have a clear set of thoughts on regional variations. This is not a very interesting question. So feel free to pass it back. <laughs> I am positive there are differences. I was doing <laughs> such different work in New York. So I was doing academic work. I was working for the National ACLU Criminal Justice Project. We were trying to end mass incarceration through litigation. It turns out you can't end mass incarceration through litigation, but we brought, brought lawsuits that mattered and that impact people's lives. And there was always a racial dynamic. We were going into majority poor black towns where 80% of the residents were being arrested on suspected judge char dr drug charges in blatant acts of racism by police departments. And we were not an entirely white team of lawyers, but we were a 90% white team of lawyers. And race was always part of those interactions. And my job was to win cases that had an impact at scale. And the question was always, for me, how is this meaningfully contributed to the liberation of incarcerated people? And because it is the United States, incarcerated people of color and particularly incarcerated black people, because the United States has used inc mass incarceration as an anti-Black weapon and as a weapon against other people of color and against Native and Indigenous people. And then there was just my experience of being Jewish in New York. And I, I there, there's different parts of my political work that connected to that, different parts of myself that connected to that. But in Minnesota, I'm working with communities of faith, conscience, and spiritual practice, or that I have been for the past four years. And the reason I started doing that is multifold, but when Black Lives Matter was emerging as a national movement. And in Minnesota, I started to ask, you know, ask the question, how do I as a white person work with other white people to dismantle white supremacy because our liberation depends on it? Because we cannot live in a world that is free until we dismantle white supremacy and build collective liberation, knowing that the violence of white supremacy is coming for Black, Brown, Native, Indigenous, and POC bodies first, but that, we as white people both, you know, we like we broke it. It's our like our role in repair is so deep and so accountable. And also that our liberation is is intertwined with the end of the system. And it was people of faith and spiritual practice and religious identity and conscience who were showing up. And out of that, I built a set of relationships that led to my political work and prof and professional work that had, you know, in many ways already been forming and existing because we moved through relationship and community organizing. But I, that shifted for me, my personal, my personal and communal experience of being Jewish into something that was present in my work in a new way and present in, in, in my public facing universe in a new way. I guess the question I would have is, as, as you are endeavoring in your, uh, 
interfaith work along the lines of social justice. What particular hopeful themes have you seen, mm. I think, in your Christian partners um, that we can help build upon, right? Even as we, I think, engage in the, the realm of social justice from, from a Christian theological perspective, like what, what, like what optimism have you seen in those partnerships that you've seen and the work that you've done? Uh, and in what ways can we help bridge, I think, the Christian community in, in those spaces that we've seen in previous uh, iterations of movements such as the civil rights movement? Um, so we'll love your thoughts on that. I think there is so much willingness and appetite and openness among folks who practice in the Christian tradition to ask questions of their history and of their institutional history. I feel like I get to experience every day a cracking open where there are people of deep faith and deep Christian faith who find joy and welcome and possibility in their Christian tradition who are ready and wanting to ask challenging and hard questions of the institutions that have shaped Christianity and of themselves as people who have benefited from Christian supremacy in, an, in, in a country, the United States, the United States and its colonies, which is in a moment of incredible resurgence of Christian supremacy and its role in public life and in political life. And so I think there's, a, there's this posture of spiritual grounding that so many people bring that just, there's a depth and a complexity and a maturity and a willingness and a stay in itness where I'm like, that is the stuff. I, it's we are all struggling with our histories and inheritances, but but like that way of coming to it, that is what keeps you in it and keeps you in relationship in it. I've also seen so many Christian folks of multiple racial identities coming into deep conversation with native and indigenous folks about the harm of that the Christian church has caused in the United States and its colonies to native and indigenous folks. And many native and indigenous folks being practitioners of Christianity, I think the taking of account and the taking of responsibility and the commitment to repair is something I get to see every day and it is gorgeous. But there, there isn't a list you can check off. There isn't a now it's okay and it's better. There, there is a coming deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship and, and knowing and responsibility. I realized as I was pausing, there was, a, there was a theme in the question Chris asked about religion and ethnicity that connects in some ways to the question Grace asked about what did you experience in New York? What are you experiencing in Minnesota? And for me personally, when I was in New York, it just seemed obvious to me and people, though this is, you know, of course, my own projection and imagination of people, because we're always making up who we think other people are, that Jewishness was a collective belonging, that it may or may not be a religious practice, but there was a, there was a substance to Judaism that was not defined by religious practice or observance or a religious frame. And when I came to Minnesota, where Christianity is much, much more prevalent in daily life, again, in my experience than it was in New York, the, the frame of Christianity is based around one, many, many understandings of religion and faith, but of a different understanding of religion and faith than I've received and experienced through Judaism. And so people would say, oh, you, you're Jewish. I'm so glad you're a religious person like me. Or, oh, you're Jewish. I'm so glad you're a person of faith. And I'm like, 
oh gosh, we should talk because <laughs> I'm definitely like person of faith is never a way that you could like would describe myself. Faith is not what defines my relationship to Judaism. Even for very, very religious Jews, it's often not what defines their relationship to Judaism. We ask a lot of questions about the thing that we might call into a name of impossible being because the name can never be known because it is sacred in a way that is beyond, you know, like, et cetera. This is why we say Adonai. This is why we say Hashem. The thing you might call God. Yeah, there's a lot of questioning there and faith is not the thing that defines it. And, you know, there are some religious or orthodox Jews who might say, actually, faith completely defines it. And here's how I understand it. And we can have that conversation, but it would be in a language that is different than the term shaped by Christianity. But I know when Christian folks in the in Minnesota say, oh, great, like you're a person of faith, they mean something so different than what I mean. And the prevalence of that frame is so intense. So I, I practice parts of religious Judaism. I practice parts of observance. But, but when I call myself a Jew, it is a covenant. It is a relationship to a collective people and to history and to my ancestors and to belonging. And then there's some, you know, and, and even what we practice as a religion is that I'm a person and I have a, you know, and I have a Christian faith and I'm a Christian and this is my religion. It's I'm a Jew and Jews do this. These are the rituals and, and again, covenants and observances and commandments of us as Jews who have a relationship to the land and to the unknowable, you know, the unknowable creative principle of the universe. And I love that if you asked any other Jew, they would answer this differently. There isn't an orthodoxy to it. But what I what I know to be true is that it's not the same as, as the frame that Christianity uses for religion. And so that was a difference I felt deeply when I came to Minnesota and when I started doing multi-faith work. And also just because I do multi-faith work, the, the assumptions that when I say I'm Jewish, that means I have a certain type of religious presence in the world because there is just less understanding of the parts that are about being a collective people and of collective belonging and of maintaining a living connection to history and inheritance and lineage and ancestry. And the idea that you might not observe because you believe, you might observe because it is what your people do. And the, and the belief is an open question, but the doing is what's required of, of an ethical person. It, these, these are instructions for how to live an ethical life and what you believe about it, that, is, that, is, that might be contested territory. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Liz. Um, I really appreciate, yeah, this conversation and the work that you do um, towards collective liberation and just building relationships with others uh, towards this purpose. And um, I have a more like practically oriented question because it is like hard work, you know, community organizing and um, just talking with like some of my coworkers currently. Um, in the health department for the city that I work in. Yeah. Public health is really difficult too. We work with a lot of community um, organizations too um, to advocate for racial equity. And like a lot of us are just tired. Oh, yeah. So um, what are some like practices of self-care that you do to sustain you in this work? I've learned a lot about boundaries as I've grown older. Magic, it's a wonderful thing. but. If I had to give one answer, and thank goodness there are a million answers, I would say the fact that I work with people I love is a 
ever giving source of nurture, like nurturance and joy and restoration. And it's being able to do my work in relationship and to do it in relationship with people where we are actually committed to each other, to each other's joys and sorrows and to what happens in our lives. And it doesn't have to be that way to do social justice work. It doesn't, everyone has different ways of coming to what their lives need to be like relationally. You don't have to be friends with, in fact, it's really like you definitely don't have to be friends with everybody you work with to have it be restorative and meaningful for so many reasons. But for me, for who I am, I just receive so much energy and support from being in deep relationship with the people with whom I work. It's often, I, I, I often remind myself that I am working towards a world and a set of conditions of being where we don't have to make a list of the ways we are going to take care of ourselves when we are exhausted and depleted and hurt because those ways of caring for one another will be fully, will be integrated into the way we live. And that self-care won't be a thing you do when you have a minute because you've done too much. It will actually be our caring for each other in all ways. And I get to work with a group of people where we try to practice that. I get to work with a group of people who try to practice caring for each other and for the land and for relationships as an ordinary, mundane, everyday act woven into the way we are together. And that keeps me and supports me and energizes me and keeps me well. Liz, can I ask you a bit more about, I think you mentioned at the beginning that part of the work that you do is um, uh, sort of around climate justice as well. And I, I love that that emphasis on social justice is not kind of siloed into particular areas, but recognizing that all of these things interrelate. So. Um, actually the relationship between racial justice and climate justice is really important and we have to pay attention to that. Absolutely. We sent a multi-faith delegation to the UN Conference on Climate in Glasgow from Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light. And we sent a youth organizer from North Minneapolis who holds multiple racial identities, one of which is Black. We sent a board member who is from Bangladesh and carries the stories of being a climate refugee from Bangladesh. Uh, we sent native and indigenous water protectors and media makers who are telling the story of the movement to stop the line three oil pipeline. And first and foremost, because of the way wealth is hoarded and the way power is hoarded alongside wealth, in particular political formations, it is folks who are attempting to benefit from white supremacy who are ensuring that it is black ground POC native and indigenous people who are going to suffer the worst from the impact of climate change. And that is a disaster for everyone on the planet. And again, where the violence lands first matters. I also believe it's true that the same systems that try to make us believe that somehow whiteness will protect any of us. And, you know, folks who are not white have many ways of not believing that, but for folks who hold whiteness or folks who are in proximity to whiteness in different ways, any part of you that believes that whiteness could ever protect you, which aside, in some situations, that is a practical reality, but I mean in a spiritual sense and like, a, like the great turning of the universe, how are we going to be in liberation with each other sense? So the systems that try to sell whiteness as the way to order the universe are the very same systems that are trying to convince people and more than trying to convince people that are moving machinery into the ground 
to extract resources from the earth without reciprocity, without mutuality, without sustainability. In the same way we invented a racial hierarchy of violence in order to steal bodies and land, the, the systems that perpetuate white supremacy perpetuate extracting resources from the earth in ways that are dangerous for the planet. They are intertwined at every level, not just spiritually, but practically and politically. So in, in the early part of my legal career, I was a fellowship attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights. And we were suing oil companies for atrocities around the globe on native land and against native people. So Shell Oil was committing massacres against the Ogoni people in the Niger Delta. Chevron was committing attempted genocide in the place called Burma, now Myanmar, right? And they were doing it to make money. They were attempting to kill black and brown and native and indigenous and POC people with impunity. And they were doing it to take oil to make more money, knowing, knowing that that endless taking of oil would without question harm the planet and cause climate crisis. And there's just, there's just no way to separate the impact and there's no way to separate the cause. And so I believe we have to work at the intersection of climate justice and racial justice because there's nothing about them that's separate. We, we use language in the way that we do to, to, to make distinctions. So sometimes we use different words around them, but there is only an intersection. There is only the places where they meet. And when I say that, I know that if somebody in a different body and a different set of identities were speaking, they might name that really differently from their own experience. And, and I, I hold that with honor and respect. It is very much, I mean, I expect somebody who isn't white might show up and be like, all right, whatever climate justice, I need to tell you about what's happening in my community and what's happening to me as a person of color. And so I'm not, I'm not saying that people need to claim those two things together. I'm saying where I come from in my work is a place of, of knowing that to shift one that we can't, we, we, we can't create a vibrant and sustainable planet with a racially just economy that benefits everyone where we can all live safely in community. If we're not talking about racial justice in, in very clear terms, and, we can, and, and I don't believe that we can end systems of violent racial inequity or repair the wounds of our history in the United States without also talking about what we have done to the land. Just to pick up on that interrelationship there, I'm mean, reminded of the work of uh, Stephen Reicher, a social psychologist. Um, interestingly, himself also uh, identifies as Jewish. Um, and there is that great uh, pattern of Jewish uh, social psychology, which came out uh, post-Shoah. Uh, but one of the things that he identifies along with, uh, you know, in the vein of uh, Henri Tajfel, who is, a, again, a Jewish social psychologist, um, is in the nature of our identities and not, not so much in the identities that keep us apart, but the power of the crowd as to draw us together. So uh, people who are within a crowd can be drawn together on the basis of different identity structures, uh, even if they might be diametrically opposed at different times. So he's a, he's a Brit, um, and so he's been doing a lot of analysis of various riots in the UK. Uh, so the Bristol riots in 1980, uh, the London riots in 2011, uh, and also the tensions in Ireland and things like that. And one of the things that he highlights is that there's a nature of the crowd that means that you can disassemble the existing 
antipathy between groups in order to dissemble a new identity which can be positively expressed. Um, and I'm interested in your work with uh, community organization as well. Does that work in the same way? I mean, ha have you seen much in terms of the power of collective action, be that on, on whatever area, and especially, I guess, local collective action where people coming together as neighbors in order to break down those uh, entrenched divides of race or anti-Judaism, anti-Blackness and things like that? I have seen so much power in collective belonging and collective experience. I don't think there's any way to do community work and, or rather, of course, there's a way to do community work and not experience it. I cannot imagine my own experience separate from moments of effervescence of deep collective experience, of knowing belonging, of feeling the bodies of the people around you as a present and physical and living thing, of, of, that, of the moment when I can feel that my being on this earth is not just mine. And that's a, it's, it's visceral. It's, it's being in a crowd and knowing your connection as, as much as you know your own breath. And my gosh, living through a pandemic where we're so exquisitely aware of how our bodies impact one another, of whether, of what happens when we breathe the same air. Uh, it's so it's so present. And I think something that matters to me very much in describing those experiences is knowing that the the goal and the pleasure and the possibility and the transformation is not in erasing difference. It's not, oh, great, we're all the same underneath. It's not, look, shared humanity, yay. It's that the possibility of transcendent belonging is because we are fully inside our differences and in who we are and the way that and the ways that is not the same. And we are a collective and we are interdependent and interconnected. And no part of me needs to be less than or minimized or erased or not show up to be in that collective. It is as all of that that I am here. And I think. I've had the privilege of experiencing glimpses of that in, in social action and social movements. And I, I think the more we cultivate that possibility and the conditions of that possibility, the more we win. And if win means transforming conditions towards collective liberation as a practice, that that, I mean, that's what I mean by win. But I'm so glad you asked that, Chris, and I so appreciate it. Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your insights and passion and experience with us. We really appreciate it. It has been such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the conversation and for your questions and for inviting me. Mm -hmm.